top show and give me a game and get their attention. I, I, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. It's great to hear all those conversations going on. Such, such authority I've got. <laughs> all right. Um, it's great to hear all those conversations going on. We're going to go back into our Bible reading shortly. Before we do that, there's an extra announcement about the men's event. Um, with the payments, Damien is very... So with the men's event, just an extra announcement, Damien is very happy to give out his bank account details for people to pay that way. We've also been told the QR code on the Facebook site is live, so you can actually pay and register via the QR code, and some people have been able to do that already. So there's no reason not to come. There's so many ways to pay. There's so much information being thrown around about the event. Come along. It should be fantastic. All right. To, um, today's Bible reading is taken from Hebrews, so we're carrying on through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're looking at chapter 10, starting at verse 19 and going through to the end of the chapter. Uh, if you pick up a Bible on your way in, it's on page 1872. Um, I'll just give you a moment to find that on your devices or you can read it on the screen. So it's Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received, after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. 
you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Thank you, Matthew. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. So, sometime in the 20s or 30s, uh, the Nazis began to take over in Germany, but they didn't arrive overnight, did they? And Jews were not ferried off for internment or execution suddenly. It was a slow creep. It was decades, in fact, some would say it was centuries of build-up. It slowly became harder and harder to be publicly Jewish or even to have anything to do with a Jew. It started with skepticism and mistrust of all sorts. Then jobs would be harder to get, especially if it was in government or academia. Other pathways eventually grew scarce as well as all sorts of private associates were just less and less willing to do business with you. Eventually, even your friends would slowly, quietly start cutting ties. In some tragic cases, you were divorced and maybe estranged from your children so that their genealogies could be obscured. In the early years, long before evil people were fully empowered to enact their darkest fantasies, there was a cost to being Jewish in Germany. A social cost, a professional cost, a personal cost. Before it was dangerous, it was inconvenient. It was shameful. It was costly. That's the sort of situation the Epistle to the Hebrews is written to. But let me make a couple of distinctions here. First, there's no indication in this epistle of some horrible, looming, genocidal, violent tragedy. None at all. So we have no reason to believe that anything sinister like that ever descended on these believers and we don't need to draw those sorts of equivalencies. Uh, the second distinction, this congregation isn't facing persecution based on their bloodline. The Jews in Germany could not shed their Jewishness and with it the costs. But that's precisely the point. The believers in this epistle can walk away from their beliefs. They can stop associating with the church and with other Christians. If they no longer think it's worth the professional, the social, the personal, personal costs, if they can't bear that pressure anymore, these people can abandon the faith. That's why this congregation needs a powerful word of exhortation, the writer calls it at the end in chapter 13 sounds like something that's only going to be more and more relevant for the church today, doesn't it? Even more so, there's a good chance that this letter is written to a second generation church. Trinity Allgate is only 20 years old, it's actually pretty young. Many of you were here in the beginning. Your zeal, your clarity of vision strengthens us still. But what about when you're gone? 
What about the generations after you? And what about as the pressures around us on Christians in our country continue to accumulate? Will we here persevere? What do we need to persevere for generations to come? What can we do now to smooth the way for that? The writer of this letter is very confident that we can persevere, and he has a deceptively simple and obvious strategy to help us. Let's have a look. So in this first section, starting in verse 19 and going to verse 25, verse 19 says, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. This is like what we talked about last week, the most holy place. It's not actually a a place, it's more about who's in that place. It's about God. It's about his presence and his purpose. And we enter confidently. It's not about self-confidence. It's more like citizenship. We belong. We have a right to be there. Verse 19, by his blood. And verse 20, through his flesh. Through that, we are able to grasp fully the will of our God to forgive and to restore. We're able to experience a grace so strong that our consciences are cleansed. There can be no doubt that we belong in his presence. It is our new and living way. Verse 20. Then in verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, which is Jesus himself, who is there with us, God's own son, and our personal advocate for all eternity. He speaks for us. We have the greatest possible access to God. Chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Okay, so, since we have this confidence, since we have Jesus with us, so what? From verse 22, draw near, hold unswervingly, spur one another on. Here's the strategy. It's nothing less than the most basic way that Christians are supposed to express and to embody everything we've heard in this book so far. It's meeting together. It's church. Christians meet together to worship regularly and publicly. In this season for this congregation, in the epistle, many attempted to stop meeting. Verse 25. They are losing sight of why they need to and why it matters. How would you summarize why church matters? For this writer, church is about God, church is about Jesus, and church is about each other. And as I go along here, you may notice me being a bit casual with the distinctions between his audience and us right here today. And there's a reason for that, and we'll circle back around to it later. So first, above all, meeting together is so that we can draw near so that we can approach God. 
That's verse 22. It's the same idea pictured in verse 1 from last week, where there's an altar at a temple, because that was the old way to approach God. Now, we can do that by meeting together. The place where God is, is no longer inside the temple. It is with those who trust in His Son as they gather in His name. Our God is with us here this morning in a greater way than every other day. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't with you when, you're, can't come, when you can't come to church for some reason or you know, when Monday ticks over. That's not what it means at all. But we're just not after the bare minimum of God, are we? We want as much of Him as we can get. And we're getting Him in extra measure when we meet together like this. When the temple was completed under King Solomon in 1 Kings 8, the glory of Yahweh filled the building and no one could approach. Yet Solomon responds in prayer like this, even the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Both things are true. God intended for there to be a concentrated experience of his presence at the temple, even while he was, of course, always everywhere, all the time. It's the same with church. God is everywhere. God is with Christians, dwelling in them by his spirit. At the same time, God intends a concentrated experience of his presence when his people meet together in worship. Is that how you would describe church right now? It's part of why this writer must insist Do not neglect to meet together. Draw near. Draw near in the new way opened to us by Christ, with full assurance, with consciences cleansed. Meeting together is about approaching God. Meeting together is about worship. The next one, verse 23. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. We've heard this before. Chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Chapter 6, verse 18. We have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. The conviction, the faith, the hope is what he has been discussing for the whole book. It's Jesus. When we meet together, it's all about Jesus. Greater than angels, greater than Moses, the Son of God, our great high priest who became like us, who has fully revealed the grace of God for sinners, who reigns from heaven until he comes again. It's all about Jesus. In him we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life to come. In him we are fully restored. Our dignity, our purpose under God, restored. There's my brief recap of the previous nine chapters. And when we meet together, all of this, we are professing it all the time. Sometimes we actually do that by standing and and capturing it all in a creed, like the Apostles' Creed. But otherwise, we, we sing it. We pray it. We hear it. We even reenact it a little bit in the Lord's Supper. That's church. 
we meet together to hold unswervingly to Jesus. And the longer we do it, the more all these riches shape everything about us. The longer we do it, the more we are built up and strengthened against nagging, tempting alternatives around us. The longer we do it, the deeper our convictions and courage grows so that we can hold to that hope unswervingly in the face of all sorts of pressures. Meeting together is about remembering, celebrating, proclaiming Jesus. Lastly, verse 24. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Or rather, consider how we might do so, it says. So the phrasing there, it's not actually about what we should do exactly, it's about creating the conditions for doing it. What's that about? Because the love and good deeds here, they're not meant to be cryptic. Look after each other. Meet each other's needs. Help each other to thrive. But how can I know you? What's going on for you? How I can serve you in this way if I don't see you? If I don't spend time with you? The church in a time like this, in the epistle to the Hebrews, probably gathered in a private home. They would, have, they would have had some worship that followed some forms like we do in here. But that would have been surrounded by eating and drinking, by relaxing and being refreshed in each other's company. It's hospitality. The sort that enables real friendships. We do a little bit of that here on Sundays, but for us, it probably spills over into growth groups and all sorts of other ways that we meet. The question we want to keep asking is, are we involved, intimately involved, in the lives of our brothers and sisters here at church so that we can know them, so that we can know their needs, so that we can really meaningfully serve them? Here's some examples. Chris has been pushing us to do more hospitality and we've all been recipients of his and Narelle's um, generosity in their home. Standing around after church is lovely, but there's always that sense that things are wrapping up and we're going our separate ways. Once you've got bread and soup in your hands though, in somebody's home, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) You're there for a while, you're gonna get to know people. Richard and Catherine Salmon stand out in my mind for their regular practice of opening their home to their church. It's a natural way to demonstrate their love for God. I know she'll shy away from being held up as an example like this, but that constant welcome is really powerful. I would not know many of the people here anywhere near as well as I do without the Salmon's hospitality. It's the same with things like Christmas in July, whether you're a host or a guest. Here's a different way we can do this. A few years ago, when uh, Marin was struggling through a rough time, Judy did have noticed. She noticed. She came all the way out to our place. Some of you will know how significant that is. (laughs) And then she took Marin out for coffee and just listened. And then helped her to tick off some of the to-do lists for that week. It was a huge relief for Marin. It was powerful love. 
It's just a couple of examples that spring to my mind, and you'll all have your own memories. And these aren't specific models either, because there's no standard or formula. It's just opening our homes or making ourselves available to someone. It can be entirely unremarkable, and actually I hope it is a lot of the time. Yet, even then, let's make sure we don't miss what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's never unremarkable to God. It's not just kind of nice. It is, but it's not just kind of nice. It is a central part of being his people. It is the right response to the forgiveness and restoration we have received through Christ. So meeting together is about knowing and loving and serving each other. Let's summarize. Since we have confidence, confidence to approach God, and since we have a most worthy king and mediator in Christ, always keep meeting together so that we can keep drawing near to God, holding fast to Christ, and stirring up one another to love and good deeds. I don't want to spend very much time on the remainder of the passage today. It's not because there isn't heaps there. It's just that there isn't time. And all of it serves to underpin, to emphasize what we've just covered. So let me fly through just a couple of points. First the hairy bit, then the wholesome bit. And after that, we'll circle back to that connection between us here and the congregation in these pages. So the hairy bit. This is the bit from verse 26 to verse 31. It might raise questions for some people. Can you lose your salvation? Is God really angry? They're good questions. But they're actually not the issues that this writer is raising or addressing here, and so I don't want to get very sidetracked by it. They're good questions, and if those are live issues for you, I'm very, very happy to talk about it anytime. Please get in touch. So verse 26 mentions this deliberate sin. To explain this, remember last week, we talked about things like being made perfect and having a clean conscience, and we saw that they weren't about kind of, you know, momentary transgressions in that sense. They were about being forgiven and restored so that we can stand before God and share in everything he is doing. So it's similar here. This isn't sort of sin in the general sense, like any and every sin. It's connected directly here with knowing God's grace in Christ and expressing that by meeting together for worship and hospitality. The deliberate sin then is, from verse 25, people who give up meeting together even though they know that God's grace in Christ is the only way to be saved. It's kind of a simple two-ways logic, isn't it? If we don't stand under God's grace, then we stand under his judgment. At one time, that grace was revealed through the law of Moses. And aside from that grace, there was only death. Verse 28. We now have an even fuller, perfect revelation of that grace. Verse 29. In the Son of God and in the new covenant. How much more? It's a frequent catch cry in this book, actually. How much more? And he's not doing theology here, trying to answer those hairy questions. 
He's pleading. God sends his own son to show us how much he is willing to do personally so that things can be made right. If we turn from that, no greater sacrifice, no other sacrifice of any sort remains for sins. Do not outrage the spirit of grace, the writer pleads. If you have this knowledge of the truth, do not stop meeting together. That's the hairy part. Now the edifying part. Persevere, it's worth it. The final section from verse 32 reveals a time when this church suffered really terrible persecution. But in verse 34, it appears they took the promises of God very seriously. They sound like the sort of people described back in chapter 6. Take hold, taking hold of the hope set before them as an anchor for their souls. Because of how trustworthy is the one who has promised them something greater. And so they endured. They continued to meet together boldly in response to God's grace in Christ. They clearly continued to serve one another despite the huge cost of doing so. They were looking forward to better and lasting rewards. The congregation faces different challenges at the time of writing, but it's the same confidence, the same confidence in Christ that enables them to persevere, verse 36. And the writer points them to the example of those who have gone before. It's a theme he's going to return to at great length in the next chapter. And it's why he is confident saying in verse 39, we are those who have faith and are saved. So we've whipped through these last sections just to get a sense of how they fit. And let's finish thinking about how this connects for us. Always keep coming to church. Earlier on I said I'd be pretty casual with any distinctions between the congregation in, in the letter and, and ourselves. I think the teaching in this passage is so directly applicable to us. Always keep meeting together in response to God's grace in Christ. Draw near to God in this special and powerful way. Hold unswervingly to the true faith which we have inherited here. Spur one another on to love and good deeds through hospitality. Let's remember then that this was written into a particular situation, not persecution, but the steady creep of external pressures, professional, social, personal. Let's think about ours. Professional pressures might be doctors who are required to sign off on statements with worrying definitions of what it means to be human in some workplaces. Or I have a friend, a forensic accountant, who once worked for one of the big consulting firms. He eventually hit a glass ceiling because of his integrity. It's not that they wanted him to do anything illegal. They don't do that. But the culture was one where they were proud of how much they could bend and twist what was legal and take advantage and profit and extract stuff from people legally. And in recent years, the very highest offices and institutions in our land, they've made it abundantly clear. 
grift and misconduct is fine, as long as it's not illegal. He wouldn't do it, and he eventually had to leave. There can be professional costs to being openly Christian. What about social costs? Another friend of mine was a Christian in a family of observant Buddhists, and they resented her conversion. It was an open wound, a constant point of contention with the people she loved. Sunday it was a special family day for them, and her commitment to come to church was constantly rubbing salt in that wound. She was not trying to antagonise her family, far from it, but she understood that church was her right response to God's grace in Christ, and she knew that she needed church to sustain her. Another example, so far attempts to shut down Christian groups on university campuses have been headed off, but it's been attempted, and it will be attempted again. Family bonds can be strained, and free association challenged. There are social costs to being openly Christian. What about personal costs? Holding to traditional biblical positions has become pretty unpopular, hasn't it? And I reckon that makes many of us simply a bit self-conscious especially amongst our younger brothers and sisters. They may harbour a genuine fear or anxiety about being outed as Christian in the wrong circumstances. That's a tough burden to bear. Times are tight economically, especially for those who are on the wrong side of the housing crisis. The cost of living has slammed through even the responsible buffers that some people have built into their budgets and they have nowhere left to turn. In a context like that, sacrificial financial partnership with gospel ministry is a pretty tall order. Or for some, just getting to church starts to seem very optional amidst the exhaustion and the stress of keeping it all together week by week. There are personal costs to being openly Christian. As a brief aside, I don't think any of this qualifies as persecution. It's very real pressure. So there's no need to imply that it's anything like the plight of Christians under the CCP or in places that have Sharia law. There are mounting pressures on Christians in our nation. They are real. They are corrosive to our collective faith. That's a huge concern. They impact our opportunities, but I'm not sure that they're a threat to our lives or our freedom or our basic dignity. This is the same sort of distinction we made at the start when thinking about Jews in Germany. False equivalence like this doesn't endear what we face to others. It, it does the opposite, and it's just not necessary. The epistle to the Hebrews takes these pressures very seriously. It's the backdrop to the letter. And so what is the writer's exhortation in the face of all this? Since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, do not stop 
meeting together. Persevere in meeting together, in worship, in hospitality. He who has promised you rest is faithful. Reconciliation with God and eternal life with him is a great reward. In just a little while he will come, it says. In the meantime though, however long that is, we need that refreshing experience of God's presence and favour to empower us. We need to draw near to him. We need to be reminded constantly about our hope. Celebrate it. Participate in it. Because it sustains us. And this is how we hold to it unswervingly. And especially for anyone struggling in the sorts of ways that I've just described, we are going to need people to welcome us, love us, walk with us. Maybe, if necessary, if possible, help us to meet some of those material needs so that we can alleviate those pressures. We will need to keep on meeting together to do all of this. Draw near, hold unswervingly, spur one another on. Are there good reasons not to come to church? Of course there are. A pandemic is probably a pretty good one. This writer's appeal is not a guilt trip, and neither is mine. He is not telling them to be foolish. And you are wise in the spirit. You can make these careful, practical judgments about these sorts of things when you need to. This writer's appeal, and mine, is to reframe what church is and why it matters so much. Church is our response to God's grace revealed to us in Christ. In this age, church is how we practice boldly approaching our God as those who are fully forgiven, fully restored through the offering of the body of Christ. Merciful Father, we thank you that you give to us your own son, and you give to us each other. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us to serve each other, to keep meeting together despite all the pressures in the world around us, so that as we meet, we would be with you, and as we serve and love one another, we would experience even your love and kindness to us in Jesus. We don't pretend that this is always easy and that there aren't things that are pressing upon us or distracting us or drawing us away. Help us to keep coming back, to be restored and refreshed, to be sent out again, ready to cope, ready to bear witness, ready to proclaim. We thank you for your grace for us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.